The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Dobrovecha i dobrodoshli. Your Excellency, distinguished speakers and guests, good evening and welcome to this panel discussion. My name is Brona Chatterbushich and I'm an Assistant Professor in Applied Linguistics in the School of Linguistic Speech and Communication Sciences here in Trinity College Dublin. We are organising this event through outreach with the Bosnia-Herzegovina Association of Ireland, a voluntary community-based organisation of Bosnians in Ireland and Irish Friends of Bosnia. The event is hosted by Trinity Longroom Hub, and we are very grateful for the Hub's support in bringing us all together this evening. The theme of our discussion is After Srebrenica, reflecting on the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina. It is now approaching the 26th anniversary of the Srebrenica genocide, in which over 8,000 boys and men were killed by Bosnian Serb forces in a UN safe area in July 1995. And earlier this month, the conviction of Rakum Ladic, the war crime general of the Bosnian Serb army for genocide and crimes against humanity was upheld by a UN court in The Hague. And we saw yet again how atrocities such as Srebrenica still impact on the lives of survivors and the communities. This evening, our speakers will share perspectives from academia, the arts, and as public and community representatives on issues relating to the Bosnian war and its legacy, the impact of trauma and displacement, the lived experience of refugees, and what can be learned from Bosnia and Herzegovina today. Just a few reminders before we start, the speakers will each have 10 minutes to present, and we have to stick to uh, that time frame very carefully. And uh, just if you have questions, we'll take those at the end. Please put them in the Q&A, um, not the chat function and we'll respond to as many as time uh, permits. So uh, without further ado, uh, we move to our first speaker, His Excellency Ambassador Vanya Filipovic. And Vanya is the ambassador of Bosnia and Herzegovina to the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. And he was appointed to this role in 2019. So Your Excellency, we are delighted and honored to have you with us this evening. And I hand straight over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rana. Um, I want to thank the Trinity College Dublin and the Bosnia-Herzegovina Association of Ireland uh, for organizing this panel and to thank all the panelists and of course the guests for taking part in the discussion as we prepare to commemorate 26 years since the Srebrenica genocide on uh, July the 11th. Incidentally, today is also marks 107 years from the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo setting off a tragic turn of events that sparked the First World War. Firstly, I must say that I'm humbled by the extent of commemorative uh, activities that place, take place each year around the 11th of July, both in Republic of Ireland and in the United Kingdom. And much credit for that goes to the Bosnia-Herzegovina and diaspora, but also to many organizations, foundations, academic centers, and genuine friends of our country. Uh, both in, in Ireland and in the UK. And I'm truly grateful for their dedication and respect that they show to the victims, survivors, 
and families of those who perished uh, in Bosnia, and especially Srebrenica. Reflecting on Srebrenica and the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina 26 years after cannot begin without acknowledging the painful truth that the root causes for aggression against our country, the violence and the war crimes that happened in the 1990s are still strongly reflected in the political and public life, not just in Bosnia, but the whole region. Some say that uh, they continue to be present mainly as a tool of populist politics, uh, garnering uncritical, almost blind support for nationalist causes, which serve as cover for grafting corruption, not to mention for poor leadership in economics, human rights, and development. Other people believe that such politics are not merely cover, but rather a reflection of persistent expansionist politics. This destructive discourse can be best seen in a public display of affection and admiration for convicted war criminals. They're open embraced by political, religious, artists, academic elites, further accentuated by media. And such displays are meant not only to homogenize own population and somehow legitimize their past politics and actions, but to further alienate and upset those who suffered under their crimes hoping to elicit an unwise reaction that will lead to further distancing and entrenchment. The ongoing pursuit of wartime means can also be seen in the persistent blocking of normal functioning of state institutions and strained diplomatic relations. Uh, in BIH, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, the veto power for the so-called protection of vital ethnic and entity interests are invoked constantly to prevent or blackmail the passing of even most innocuous of reforms and legislation. Then, in the most cynical twist, those who block and obfuscate claim that Bosnia-Herzegovina is a non-functioning state, and that it shouldn't really exist. So is there any good news? Yes, of course. Despite the persistent attempts to further divide communities and stifle institutions, Bosnia-Herzegovina is moving forward as a multi-ethnic society and as a functioning state. We are making slow but persistent progress in our key foreign policy goals which are membership in the EU and NATO, thus undergoing transformative processes that will provide long-term security and stability for all our citizens. We continue to build our infrastructure and economy, participating in peacekeeping operations around the world and adding to the collective security. We're leading a proactive diplomacy of expanding the list of our friends and allies who will support us and do support us in building a better, more just and more democratic and prosperous society. But this is an uphill battle, one that will continue to be fraught with setbacks and challenges from inside and outside our country. We are still looking for over 7,000 missing persons from the war. We're still facing genocide denials and various types of harassment of returnee populations. COVID pandemic has added new strains to the economy and social services, especially the health system. We continue to rely on our international friends and allies while we build institutions that can independently with various challenges. In that regard, continued Western interest and engagement in Bosnia-Herzegovina and the region as a whole is of paramount importance for their stability and prosperity. That engagement must be based on the shared values of liberal democracy, rule of law, and respect for individual rights. Willingness to compromise on those most fundamental issues only encourages illiberal forces. Securing the necessary level of engagement is not always easy, especially as other crisis spots and challenges draw the international attention. But leaving this region unattended and divisive nationalist forces unchecked invites trouble, as today's anniversary reminds us.
So I will stop here and allow maybe a little extra time for, for uh, questions from the audience later. Thank you. Vanya, thank you so much, Malavan Puno. That was a, a really important uh, contribution, and uh, and thank you also for keeping so well to time. And um, we're going to move on now to our next speaker, Professor Eric Gordy. Uh, Eric is a professor of political and cultural sociology at the School for Slavonic and East European Studies, University College London. Eric has an extensive record of research and publication on the states of the former Yugoslavia. And it's great to have you here this evening, Eric. And I'll hand over to you now. Okay. Uh, thank you, Bruna, and, and thank you for, um, for, for inviting me. I would have been very happy to be in Dublin personally. I, I like Dublin a lot, um, but, uh, um, but this is the situation that we're in. What I want to, uh, to talk about this evening is denial, um, because this is a phenomenon that, as Ambassador Filipovic already said in, in his remarks, is still very much present, very much visible. Some of the examples that he referred to are examples of celebration of crime, which is distressing in itself. Um, but I would say that most denial takes a more subtle form, and it is, doesn't take the form of simply saying that facts didn't happen, but instead it's an effort to um, deny the meaning of facts, to reframe them by displacing their context, uh, by, by altering the ways in which they're understood. And I want to talk about that in relation particular to, uh, um, to Srebrenica. The first organized attempt at denial of Srebrenica came in 2002 with the publication of a report by the Republika Srpska government, which had the unusual title, Report About Case Srebrenica. Um, it seems to have been authored by one person, Darko Trifunovic, and it made claims um, first diminishing the number of victims. It said there were about 2,000, of which 1,600 were deaths in battle. Um, and finally admits at the end, it says maybe there were about 100 or fewer than 100 victims of, uh, of massacres. This was a report that was designed to be used as evidence in the defense of suspects before the International Tribunal. Um, it was introduced in one case, in the case of Miroslav Deronic, and the judges in their decision in that case called it um, one of the worst examples of revisionism that it had seen. And there was outrage uh, directed toward it from a number of sources, um, including from the high representative. There was a more active high representative there um, who told the Republika Srpska to appoint a real commission that would appoint a real report, and they did. In 2004, you had uh, what uh, um, what was the official Republika Srpska report that is actually as close and complete an accounting of the facts as uh, we have got from an official source and is generally consistent with uh, what has been found by the tribunal and uh, tribunal investigators and other investigators. It was followed by an apology from the uh, um, uh, from the president and parliament of, uh, of Republika Srpska. And this seemed to put an end to denial until the issue became tense again. So in 2018, the parliament of Republika Srpska withdrew its support for the 2004 report. It said, we no longer say that that's true. And the following year, they appointed 
two new commissions uh, to produce revised version of the facts. One commission was supposed to reinvestigate events in Srebrenica, and another was uh, the title of the report says that it is about the suffering of Serbs in Sarajevo. Now, the new Srebrenica Commission, they have announced their report, they have given summaries of the conclusions to the press, um, but the report has not been released yet, and uh, the announcement was a week or two ago, so we have to think that something is happening there, but I couldn't say what. But the Sarajevo report was released in April, and it's a very interesting report because it gives you an idea of the shape and structure of, uh, of denial. In particular, um, the report, it's about 1,400 pages. 1,427, I believe, um, of which about 100 or less than 10% are about the topic that's in the title of the report, Suffering of Serbs in Sarajevo. Um, so what is on in that report? It's got seven chapters. Chapter one is called General Historical Introduction. Uh, that was written principally by Darko Tanaskovic, who is uh, um, a well-known uh, propagandist. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a text about history, his specialty. He is an academic, but a linguist, not an historian. And it's 137 pages all about the Ottoman Empire and social and ethnic relations in the Ottoman Empire and whether the Austro-Hungarian administration uh, favored one group or not and the experience of World War II in the socialist period and so on. Um, and generally fairly amateurish history. Then you get to chapter two. And chapter two is a very strange chapter. One of the things that it does is it draws a comparison between the conviction of Radovan Karadzic and the case of Plessy versus Ferguson. This was a 1896 case from the uh, uh, Supreme Court of the United States, which reintroduced racial segregation. Uh, the second thing that it does is it introduces this pseudoscientific test, what the author calls the Slavic language personality inventory. SLPI, um, to say that people are suffering from trauma. Then we get on to chapter three. Chapter three argues that there is an international Islamic conspiracy to take over the world or a portion of the world and says that political forces in Bosnia and Herzegovina are participating in this. Um, chapter four presents a long argument saying that media coverage during the war um, was biased. So it's only in chapter five, in fact, in the second half of chapter five, that you actually get to the topic that the uh, um, that the report is about, and there too, everything that's presented there is findings that were made by previous researchers that are already known. So the information is not new; much of it is not accurate. Um, chapters six and seven, I won't say much about. That's summary and conclusions. So look. Why does the report look this way? And why is so much of it not about the topic that, um, that the title claims that it's about? I mean, you could say simply that the authors of the report did a bad job. And this would be a reasonable thing to expect to participate in a project that has very little independence and credibility. You're not going to get the greatest academics in the world working on the um, product. But I think that's not enough. I think that uh, understanding the topical choices made in the report um, actually tells us something about, uh, about the shape and structure of, uh, of denial. I mean, the first point is the point that I made at the beginning, that what they are attempting to do is to reframe the understanding of the context of events by putting them 
into another frame. And in particular, you know, if you want to talk about these things like media bias or, uh, or the global conspiracy in the frame of conspiracy theory, that is by postulating another reality. Um, the second strategy that it has is to diminish suffering that is known by postulating suffering experienced by another group um, that, uh, um, that, may be, that may be less known. Um, so uh, um, that is to, uh, um, to postulate equivalencies in places where equivalencies do not exist. Um, a third strategy that you can see there is to refuse to make distinctions between civilian and military victims of violence, to treat them as, uh, as being the same. Um, so what's fascinating about these denial projects, and uh, I haven't yet seen the Srebrenica report because it's not yet been, uh, um, been published, is that what looks initially like it may simply be a bad job done by people of modest qualification actually tells us something about the understanding of the world and the motivations um, behind uh, behind groups and organizations and in this case even governments involved in in denial um, so this is a brief overview I will uh, I will finish with that and let me just thank you again thank you for for the invitation and I'll be very happy to uh, to listen to what all of the other participants here have to say Thank you so much, Eric, uh, for that fascinating account, uh, focusing on the very contemporary issue of genocide denial uh, and denial uh, of the atrocities um, in Bosnia and Herzegovina during the war. We will now turn to our next speaker, uh, Ms. Aida Salka-Chowton. Uh, Aida is a representative of the British Charitable Initiative uh, named Remembering Srebrenica. And this month, uh, indeed, uh, Aida was awarded an MBE for her community work with the Remembering Srebrenica organization. So we're delighted you can join us, Aida, and uh, I'll hand over now to you. Thank you. Good evening, and thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, Remembering Srebrenica has been founded in 2013. Uh, I have been involved with them since 2014 uh, as a board member of the West Midlands um, uh, board and um, the vision is very simple it's just a society free of hatred um, to accomplish that uh, the charity has managed to generate thousands and thousands of volunteers like it's like an army of amazing people from all over the the uk that have been doing amazing things um, the charity uh, has nine regional uh, and country boards who actually help organize different events um, throughout the year. So it's not just during the Memorial Week, but actually throughout the year. Um, to give you the scope of how many events, I can just tell you only last year we had 1,800 events um, taking place uh, throughout the UK, which is absolutely amazing uh, number. And of course, we're trying to beat that this year. Hopefully we will succeed that. Um, the concept is very simple. Uh, it goes into three steps. Uh, we remember, um, we learn, and we pledge. So organizing remembrance events of all sorts, they can be as, as little or as, as big uh, as people uh, feel they need to be or can be. Um, so they involve uh, poetry nights, um, religious uh, um, talks or inter-religious talks, uh, or simply memorial services. Um, 
often they also use um, testimonials from war survivors, which kind of give another dimension to any of the events that, that uh, we organize. We learn. Um, Charity has an amazing pro uh, program called Lessons from Srebrenica, which I will talk a bit later, uh, a bit more into detail about. Um, but it is a visit, they take people across um, to Bosnia and Srebrenica to, to meet several survivors there and to, to visit these sites of, uh, different sites of, you know, um, in the country. And they learn kind of firsthand on what has been happening there. Um, but also they have amazing educational packs for primary and secondary schools. Uh, the only thing is that whoever goes there um, with this uh, particular pro uh, project, they actually need to pledge. They need to pledge simply to do something positive upon their return within their own community. Uh, and again, it can be as, as big or as, as little as, as, they, as it needs to be, or they can uh, uh, organize it. So I will, uh, we will play a short video for you now, just so you can see the impact one of them visits had on the people that I took across. When I took part in this trip, I knew nothing about the genocide that had happened. I'd only ever heard about the events very briefly. What I was told about and what we've been experiencing, I just didn't know what effect it would have on me. It wasn't anything that I thought it would be. The bus came into view with a graveyard on the right-hand side. I was just null. That graveyard is a field, as far as you can see, with 7,000-plus gravestones. It hit me really hard on how such a massive tragedy happened. And to experience something of that magnitude on the trip with people that you've just met, you know, I kind of really, really appreciate life a lot more now. So um, as you have uh, maybe noticed, <clears throat> some of the younger generations have actually never heard of Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, until they went there, which was um, a kind of learning curve for most of them in, in, in so many different ways, which is actually beautiful. It was pretty beautiful to see. <clears throat> and then we have some, some images from some of the events I've organized in uh, Stockholm Trent as well. Um, and of course, they involve all sorts of different uh, community um, leaders and religious um, representatives. They even have the uh, uh, monument, um, peace for peace, as we call it. It's the, like a giant Srebrenica flower, like the one I have here. Um, so, as I said, charity uses the um, war survivors to put the, the story across uh, and the reason why we really want to prevent hatred and discrimination and, and, and violence uh, anywhere in the world. Um, I myself, um, I was a teenager when the war broke out. Um, and I was just very lucky to get a job as a UN interpreter. When I say oh, very lucky, um, uh, besides the financial, uh, of course, aspect, it was the fact that my mind was occupied, so I kind of didn't think of, of the of the you know of the the shelling around me and the shooting. But then again, as as a war interpreter, I had to be there for the body exchange. You know, there were some things that uh, like a teenager really shouldn't shouldn't witness, or well, nobody really, you know. But um, of course, besides, you know, sleeping in a shelter without ha having, you know, food or, or electricity, um, it, it helps me connect with the young people um, in Socon Trent and, and in particularly uh, YMC North Staffordshire, where I work. And sometimes when they feel really, really low, I tell them, well, you know, like even when things go really, really bad, um, 
nothing is lost. Like we can still kind of see the, the daylight. And the fact is that the loss of control um, and the loss of life is the two things that I really couldn't uh, cope with. And this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, uh, going around and trying to um, uh, show people how, how bad um, the, the crimes um, or, or you know the, the hate, speech of hate can be. And then I wanted to address, <clears throat> sorry, once again, the, the trip, educational trip uh, to, to Bosnia, which I think is absolutely amazing way of, of uh, educating people. Uh, before we take people there, uh, we try to kind of get to know delegation. So we uh, try to fundraise together and kind of pay forward for, for people uh, next time, for a young person next time. We also uh, create a special bonds between, between all of the delegation can help each other along the way. But I think the biggest highlight is meeting the mothers um, of Srebrenica, uh, ladies who have been uh, amazing in their dignity uh, and their pursuit of truth and justice that I think we all can learn from. Um, of course, upon return, we have to do something for the community. So we go around with different um, with different organizations, pretty much anybody who will have us and, and we try to tell them how we felt and, and what what we have uh, learned from, from Srebrenica over there. Um, of course, the the work of remembering Srebrenica is so amazing that I, th I don't think people back home can grasp it, how big it is, but we are internally grateful. And every time I go back home, uh, people do kind of approach me and say, what is that? Like, how is that possible that people do so much over there? Um, I'm still amazed by it and I'm still very, very grateful. And, uh, and I hope that the number will just grow. Um, of course, you can always just visit the, the website of sabrinsa.org.uk and find different resources that they have um, for different institutions like police uh, or for schools. Um, it's like a very amazing uh, um, uh, pack that have been made thanks to some of our professors, uh, guest professors here as well. Um, so again, um, let's just work on justice and reconciliation. Um, in the hopes for a better future. And then again, I yield my time through the questions in the end. Aida, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much, Aida. Um, that was uh, a very personal account of your own experience uh, during the war in Bosnia and also the incredible work that you've been doing with Remembering Srebrenica and the fact that, um, you know, for a younger generation uh, who may not be aware of what happened in Bosnia, you're kind of bringing that learning to them and it has um, so much uh, impact for society today. So I move to our next speaker, um, Ms. Fardis Sultan. So Fardis is a Bosnian-Irish community activist a PhD candidate and a lecturer in marketing, cyber psychology and business computing in TU Dublin and Trinity Business School. And Fardis, as well as being highly involved with the Bosnian-Herzegovina Association of Ireland, uh, she's also a board member of many community organisations. So it's great to have you here with us, Fardis, and I'll hand over to you and you're using your slides, okay? Thank you. 
Fantastic. Um, thank you. Thank you, Bruna, and thank you. Thank you all. Uh, it's my pleasure really to be part of this tonight's panel. Um, the, the obviously topic is very, uh, very close to my heart, but, um, uh, but also um, uh, it, it's great. It's humbling to be uh, amongst uh, some uh, really amazing speakers. So thank you for that. So really what I'll be talking to you tonight about is the actual Boston community in Ireland. Uh, I'll provide you with a very kind of very brief overview uh, of the community in Ireland. Um, I'll outline some of the um, supports and challenges uh, and then give you some of the current situation and, and the lessons hopefully. So um, Boston community in Ireland can, it traces its Irish roots if you like to the, the war in Bosnia itself which is understandable. Um, we were very much uh, welcomed at, in the, uh, to Ireland at the time and my mom to this day uh, actually insists that we were guests of the nation and that was really uh, amazing experience, something amaz uh, amazing to experience, uh, to experience for all of us. Um, and in terms of the, the um, the group itself, uh, we are very much reflect the ethnic and cultural, uh, if you like, makeup of Bosnia and Herzegovina itself. We are very a diverse group, but with shared experiences, experiences of war and war tra trauma, uh, and also uh, coming to a new a new host country. Um, we are also one of the first uh, Irish migrant refugee community of modern times. Um, we are, uh, and certainly kind of, uh, and there are some amazing lessons that could be hopefully applied for other communities because I have to say I keep saying for all of us we had uh, an amazing experience uh, fantastic support sir, uh, support throughout so where it all started uh, was obviously with the war um, during the early uh, period of the war in Bosnia in 1992 one way that Irish government uh, and uh, reflecting the Irish sentiment of the Irish society at the time, they wanted to help uh, the, the Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, and one way that they are Irish uh, government felt that they could help was to bring uh, some Bosnians, uh, many Bosnians, um, uh, uh, many Bosnians who were displaced due to, due to, due to the war. And we had the first Bosnian uh, uh, refugees uh, arriving in September in 1992 on the foot of the government decision to bring them over. And over the period of um, you know, five to six years, we had a number of those uh, decisions um, by government where they've decided to bring uh, different kind of groups of, of Bosnians. Many of them would have been in injured and wounded um, civilians. Uh, some of them also survivors of detention or concentration camps themselves. And you can see through a reunification scheme and uh, birth, the, the community has grown you know, a little bit so nowadays, the estimate um, is that there are in around 2000, 2300, most of whom uh, are Irish citizen. Um, so the initial resettlement uh, was very much handled by the Refugee Agency, which was an uh, organization founded by the Department of Foreign Affairs. But it was then there was a board of management on, on, on which number of the representatives of other organizations and departments, government bodies um, uh, were, were sitting and providing expertise on. And most of the refugees were living initially in a former hospital, Cherry Orchard Reception uh, Center in Balifermit. And there is a picture I could find, uh, not very reflective, but uh, but certainly um, it, it was part of it, it was the first experience, first thing that we've experienced when, uh, upon arrival to Ireland. For those who were wounded, uh, who required treatment, uh, they would have uh, they uh, they would have stayed and undergone treatment in Cap Orthopedic Hospital that had the expertise at the time. Um, but what was really unique at the time was while the refugee agency provided this kind of legal uh, uh, welfare.
for uh, support, and including linguistic and English language organization and all of those. There was also Civil Defense and Irish Red Cross. And those were organizations that allowed additional kind of avenues of um, support where Irish people themselves could participate in, in this resettlement. So that was the first phase. And then we move on to the kind of, if you like, long-term, uh, uh, longer, uh, a proper kind of uh, resettlement. Uh, and what happened was the majority of people were moving on, uh, were moved uh, into private housing. We were given a choice where we would like to live. Most of us decided to live in, in Dublin. Many, us, uh, many of us originally thought we would stay here very temporarily only during the war. Uh, so we uh, want to stay in Dublin. The other thing that really helped the, um, the, the resettlement was the family unification. And you have to remember this was during the time many of us would have family members in Bosnia who would have, you know, we wouldn't have had contacts with them. There was no internet at the time. Contacts were very difficult to maintain. So here, you know, family unification was essential for our kind of resettlement process. And here actually even on the right is my own grandmother who was airlifted from at the time besieged Sarajevo and, and greeted by my mom and my brother at the Dublin airport. So it was very, you know, it, it, it's very personal uh, and very real. Um, uh, need for, for all of us in order to move forward. The other thing that made the difference for all of us was this um, uh, Irish support, tremendous Irish support. So when we would move in, into uh, private accommodation, private housing, many of us have, have experienced of, had experience of uh, community representatives coming to our door, heads of kind of neighborhood association and coming and welcoming us into the neighborhood and trying to kind of pr to provide that kind of saying, well, you know, we are here for you. Um, and that was just amazing. Another thing, um, so that was kind of community support. In terms of the state support, um, I think, you know, I don't think we've ever, since, since the Bosnian experiences, uh, I don't think we've ever witnessed any kind of, uh, uh, the type of support that we witnessed for the Bosnian community. Um, so there were a range of uh, support projects, uh, notably and most successfully was the Boston Community Development Project that was um, spearheaded and was uh, really a, an idea of um, a director at the time of a refugee agency, John O'Neill, who was a really inspirational person and other people who supported his work. Um, so there was the project um, uh, funded by the, the government. It was launched in 96 and opened by then Minister of State John Burton. And the project initially uh, employed all of the, all of the, uh, the only Bosnian uh, staff, some of the mostly in the community employment scheme, some on full time. And the idea was that they would provide us information and community welfare uh, support, but also social support for the, uh, for the community and also engage with the Bosnian embassy in London and Bosnian authorities and provide kind of that missing link. Um, following that, there was, uh, there was a small project that received funding only for two years, but it, it focused on the uh, Bosnian refugee woman. And the idea was to carry out, um, conduct a survey on the needs of the Bosnian woman when it comes to education, what are the barriers they might face. And I think it's, you know, lessons are quite applicable even to this day. And then um, Bosnian weekend school that focused on the Bosnian children uh, of the primary school age. Um, and the idea was to support their mother tongue development um, uh, with, with, with the idea that, you know, it would, uh, they, would, um, they would then perform better in Irish education system as well. So moving on to community support, I, I already mentioned that 
you know, it was instrumental in that huge welcome was instrumental in integration. But um, there was there was throughout there was all this solidarity from you know individuals and organizations. But I have to mention Ireland Action for Bosnia, and so many uh, and which is uh, a volunteer organization of um, of Irish people who got together um, to raise the awareness of what was happening in the, uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina do, during the war. Um, Valerie Hughes is one of the one of the leading persons there she is in a pink sweater there probably uh, will kill me afterwards for mentioning her but really needs to be mentioned uh, herself and so many others Peter Walsh and John and so so many really uh, amazing people who are there supporting us and following the end of war campaigning along with Bosnians to bring the cr war criminals to justice um, and highlighting the, the, the need for this uh, along the way, obviously, there were ama some amazing individuals, uh, activists in our own community, and I'm not going to mention any for the fear of forgetting some uh, and causing this, uh, not diplomatic, but uh, let's say diplomatic um, um, scandal, but seriously, there, you know, you guys, you know, you've been amazing, so I just applaud you for your rel relentless uh, support, but, we, uh, but all, all along, we had a number of organizations that you know, were there to um, to help the community and help the integration. So we had Club Bosna, which was a predecessor to the Bosnian Community Development Project. We had another social and cultural project, uh, Bosna as well, that part even participated in St. Patrick's parades and that focused on this kind of folklore and um, traditional um, uh, traditional uh, Bosnian heritage in terms of the dance, culinary, culinary uh, uh, expertise and, uh, uh, and crafts and so on. So participated in, in sharing kind of cultural uh, heritage uh, in, in Ireland. Uh, Bosnian Jamaat, which, which is still uh, active, which is a group um, providing religious support for, uh, for people in the local community. And last but definitely not the least, it's kind of uh, it's Bosnia Herzegovina Association of Ireland, where many of us activists have come together um, uh, and really have, you know, uh, have been, uh, and the association has been active more or less from 2010. It has been formalized in 2019 to date, but very active and, uh, and really trying to kind of, at the end, help us all to deal with this trauma. And this is something that I would love to pause and spend more time on, but unfortunately, uh, you know, we don't have a huge amount of time, but we are as a community living with, with the scarves, with the open wound of, of the Bosnian war. And the reason being is that many of the war crimes, um, and I have to mention concentration camps, rape camps, massacres, and Srebrenica genocide, even though many of us would say um, there is genocide throughout Bosnia, um, but we we are still living with with the fight and uh, trying to make sure that all of these are acknowledged that justice is um, uh, that we have the just that the survivors and victims have the justice um, not only that we can we can deal with this but also that you can uh, not uh, move forward but make sure that this does not happen and we've seen with other speakers also mentioned in and this is really relevant in light of, in light of genocide denier, deniers hate speech that we are and, and hate acts that we are all witnessing nowadays so as a community and for people you know in a way for people to relate to this i think you know, you can understand how it is when we think about uh, our lives before COVID and after COVID. So that, um, so that's, uh, and as a Bosnian community, uh, we live with kind of trauma and thinking, well, our lives before the war and after war, and this is very still kind of uh, very much um, 
very clear in our history, very, uh, um, very near to our hearts as well. So as a community, we get together annually um, to mark Srebrenica genocide. Um, and really, we are very fortunate that our, even despite our size, Irish government has been very supportive um, uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, coming up with uh, uh, coming out with statements, no uh, notions in, and uh, minutes of silence, uh, marking Srebrenica genocide, and we use this uh, to highlight what happened in Srebrenica, but also to highlight what happened in the entire Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, and really to learn from these lessons. Uh, so finally, final lessons really what we as a community, what we could offer to others is that welcome, this, this, this welcome that we experience, and I keep saying it's almost a unique welcome, is, is a key for integration, for successful integration of any community anywhere. Um, as, as a refugee community, um, most of us um, have experienced yeah, or, or we know of people who, who require additional health supports, whether it's for physical health uh, or but mental. And so the, there needs to be this kind of, um, uh, there, there needs to be foundation and, and um, support um, so that people can move forward and, and, uh, and similarly that they could have this capacity to be in control of their lives, if any of us are in control of our lives, but to do anything so that, you know, we can restart our life again. Community size matters. We are a small community, but we, we've been very, uh, so we're not necessarily very visible, um, but we've been very fortunate to be working and be engaged with various Irish partners uh, in, in, in promoting uh, our work. What is really important, again, I keep going back to that, is justice. We need to have, um, we need to have acknowledgement of what happened in the past and ensure that it does not again, happen again. And then, final, uh, looking at our own needs as a community, we um, uh, there are some long-term needs in terms of helping our, uh, the most vulnerable in our community, people who um, uh, are still living with the wounds of the war, but also people who are in general getting older and needing uh, 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 requiring additional support, uh, but also uh, making sure that our younger generation are aware of their cultural heritage, uh, including linguistic heritage, so that they can carry on uh, and continue our work. So that's really very quick walk through 30, almost 30 years of the, the Boston community in Ireland. So any questions um, at the end, please feel to throw it my way. But thank you for your time and um, attention. Thank you very much, Fardis, uh, for that very detailed account of the Bosnian community in Ireland uh, and all the work that has been done over the last 30 years. I'm going to move swiftly on to our final speaker, Dr. Anthony Hawhey. Anthony is an artist and lecturer in TU Dublin and a decade of centenaries artist in residence in the National Museum of Ireland. Um, Anthony's work has been exhibited and published nationally and internationally and includes artwork relating to Srebrenica. So we're delighted to have you here, Anthony, and I'll pass over to you now. Vala, Rona. Dobrovece, um, and thank you. It's a real honor to be here this evening. Um, Srebrenica is close to my heart. It's not something that I planned to do, but um, connecting to our earlier speaker, the history of um, the Bosnian community, particularly in Ireland and Dublin, I think brought me into that world. Um, 
I'm, I'm sure Brona wouldn't mind me saying, it's really her, her partner, Mazer, who I'd met through the um, Bosnian Community Project, that enabled me to travel to, uh, first of all, to Sarajevo, where I worked with Mazer's brother, Mejad, who um, led me through this post-conflict time. But in a broader context, I work in a research center in Dublin that's dedicated to human rights and dedicated to socially engaged art practices that really try to excavate and unearth the um, problematic world that we live in. And Srebrenica is one of those uh, questions that arose uh, in the, the mid and late 90s, which is something that I, I was drawn to and traveled to Srebrenica first in 1997. Uh, and arriving in Potichari, the, uh, the UN Dutchback headquarters and now the site of the Memorial Center was empty. The place that we know as the Memorial Cemetery on the other side of the road was just a green field. There was nothing in it. Um, and literally Srebrenica was charred. The tensions were high. And this was something to try to understand. But as a, as a visual artist, there's a responsibility in how we bring these questions into representation time and time again. And this is connected to the complexity of memory and history and many other things. I'm actually going to stay with a very short script because I know we're tight on time. There's a lot to say, but um, we'll save that for another time. Can we change slide, please? The film that I made, in 2014, 2015, it's called Unresolved. When I returned to Srebrenica uh, to start working on this film, it was completed in 2015. Unresolved derives its title from UN Resolution 819, which declared Srebrenica a safe area in April 1993. In fact, the first ever UN declared safe area. And it was placed on the protectorate of the United Nations. And we all know what followed. Change slide, please. The film reflects on the 20th anniversary of the genocide in Srebrenica. The script was researched and constructed from archival sources, including my own research notebooks, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia court hearings, and their extensive, extensive archives, and UN and military statements. First-hand victim testimonies and reflective accounts from local and international comment, commentators have researched and written extensively about the events following the Polish Srebrenica. But most importantly, the script foregrounds how histories are formulated by uh, ideological constructs. The Belgrade Tuzla Artists Collective group of Spomenik argue that genocide is fully speakable, but it's the politics and critique of ideology that are the only proper languages in which it can be spoken. So the task of the artist to, is to ask difficult questions. Change slide, please to interrogate official state histories that have attempted to erase or deem unimportant um, these kind of questions. According to the historian Pierre Nora, we speak so much of memory because there is so little of it left. He argues that, quote, history is perpetually suspicious of memory and its true mission is to suppress, suppress and destroy it, end quote. Change slide, please. The archival research for this film was scripted and restaged for the film's narrator. The narrator is a male Bosniak returning to the scene of the crime 20 years later. 
to uncover and disturb the official political historical narrative with that of the unrepresented or repressed. He's a witness to unresolved questions of culpability. The narrative generates conflicting accounts of the days that followed the fall of Srebrenica and critically engages with contested ideological motivations and power relations inscribing this raw history. Reflecting group of Nick's uh, assertion that critique of ideology is the only proper language to speak of genocide, I'm gonna quote an excerpt from the film, and I quote, on the 29th of October, 2014, excavation began on, on a suspected mass grave in Yasinovac, near Srebrenica. Several meters below the clay and silt, forensic evidence and moral calculus and historical account. Who killed or was innocent of these crimes? How many bulldozers, trucks and warehouses were needed to hide and bury this many people? Who commissioned the equipment and employed the operators? This is the logistics of mass murder. They took their time, thought long and hard about what to do with thousands of unarmed prisoners who awaited their fate in warehouses, schools and factories. A survivor of the 1995 Srebrenica genocide said, quote, I began to doubt if Europe wanted us to survive or not. Change slide, please. The opening sequence of the film is a tracking shot moving across open graves in Srebrenica Potichari Cemetery. And what follows is a reflected journey through buildings, factories, and fields where thousands of men and boys were brutally murdered. Many of these atrocity sites have returned to their original use. Crops are grown in fields where mass graves were discovered, football fields and schools where men and boys were held prisoner before they were killed, host a new generation of children living in re-territorialized ethnic boundaries. Many, as we have heard, are unaware of this shameful history. The continuous tracking shot that's used where movement and deep focus is deployed is to enable a process of distanciation or estrangement or as Bazin argues, deep focus forces the viewer to participate in the meaning of the film by distinguishing implicit relations, creating a psychological realism, which brings the viewer closer to the reality of what's being represented. Change slide, please. Unresolved was completed in early 2015. And in the weeks that followed, contractors from the Netherlands moved into the original Dutch Bath headquarters in the Srebrenica Potichari Memorial Center, where I'd filmed extensively. As a result of this renovation project, Unresolve also func functions in a different register as an historical document, which captures the building in its original state. A living archive of sensuous traces and intersecting histories. As Stuart Hall describes living archives as a field of ruptures, significant breaks, transformations, new and unpredicted departures. For an artist, the interpretation of archival material is not only an academic exercise, it can, all be, it can also be viewed as a societal intervention where historical narratives are ruptured and recontextualized, generating an emerging critical and contested site of interpretation. Change slide, please. The performed testimonies in the film function in a similar register, recalling Walter Benjamin and Paul Ricoeur's account of ethical memory in archives. Memory that is, quote, not so much locked into the past, but is concerned with opening the past as a mechanism to, re to release the future. 
And also recalling Taylor's comment that the act of remembrance is also the payment of a debt owed to the dead. Change slide, please. So I'm just gonna introduce then this short clip from the film. The duration of the full length of the film is 20 minutes and we obviously don't have time to do that here. But as I've said earlier, it's the methodology that's really important, where these sources come from and how they're remade, how they're reinterpreted. So my version of, um, of uh, Srebrenica probably disagrees with Europe and the UN and many others in order to upend in order to make a, uh, to to force a different uh, reading to bring us back to that reality of what happened on on those terrible days um, back in '95. Uh, next slide, please. And we're going to roll that film. This this three minute clip, this section of the film actually shows part of the original Dutch UN um, headquarters before it was renovated into a museum. So it, so it is an important document without its um, perhaps its directorial um, intervention by me because it has that kind of documentary evidence. And uh, at, at some point in the future, this film will be deposited in the Memorial Archive in Potichari. Um, can we roll that film now, please? This communist era car battery production factory was part of Tito's socialist Yugoslavia a time fondly remembered by many older people. At the end of World War II, Tito seized power and held the fractious republics together until his death in 1980. In a legendary speech, Tito warned his fellow comrades in Yugoslavia of an impending tragedy. He said, Think well about this, dear brothers and sisters, and you will see that we should have been in a state of terrible chaos in a fratricidal war in a country which would no longer be Yugoslavia, but be only a group of petty little states fighting amongst themselves and destroying each other. But our people do not want that to happen. Eighteenth of June, 2008. In a court hearing in The Hague, the UN's failure to protect Srebrenica's residents was highlighted in a damning report, which also challenged the UN's claim to immunity from prosecution. It stated that, both the UN military observers present in the safe area and the Netherlands blue helmets were witnesses to many war crimes. The attitude of the battalion was recorded in an entry to the Dutch Pat logbook in July 1995. It read, no opposition, no provocation, while men were continuously being taken away and executed. Eleventh of July, nineteen ninety-five. You can't imagine what it was like, a Dutch bat soldier said. Everywhere people screaming, crying, people being sick, some dying. And there was just nothing we could do. You could smell the fear. Before that day, I didn't know the fear had a smell.
14th of July 1995, the trucks stopped on a gravel plateau behind a large earthen dam, known as the Red Mud Dam. Half a dozen soldiers were waiting. The prisoners were forced to lie down on the rocks and were shot. The trucks kept coming. The execution lasted for six hours. Next slide, please, and finish. Anthony, thank you so much. Um, I think that video just says so much more than the words can actually express. And it just also ties in with your comment that the idea of the act of remembrance as a debt owed to the dead. So um, thank you very much for that powerful contribution. And, uh, and to all the speakers for your extremely interesting and thought provoking contributions this evening. Um, I know we are very short of time and uh, we, could, um, we could stay here many hours or we could organize many events uh, on this issue, but I'm just going to try to, and I will have to amalgamate some of the questions um, and put them to, um, to our speakers. Um, so just a question, two questions actually, that were asked by Simon Glynn. Um, so the first question was, Eric, in your opinion, to what extent does the moral relativism voiced or practiced, for example, by the UK government during the war, for example, Johnson's quote on Srebrenica, um, create the context that enables such denial um, by Republic Serbska, uh, the, the Serb entity within Bosnia-Herzegovina. And also relating this to uh, Simon's further question, um, do, uh, and this was addressed to uh, the Ambassador Vanya, um, do you feel that uh, the UK government plays a better role now than it did in the 1990s? Uh, and to maybe link that in with Lindsay's uh, question in relation to making a comparison to Northern Ireland, uh, the potential role for international partners such as uh, the EU and the US, and um, while these were uh, certainly meaningful uh, parties in the conflict in Northern Ireland, um, could they play or do they play a critical role in meaningful progress in Bosnia-Herzegovina? So uh, if either uh, Eric or Vanya or any of the panelists would like to address this question about the role of, of international uh, powers and how it may have changed, particularly in the case of the UK, during uh, the war uh, and to the present. Okay, well, well maybe since I have the the shorter thing to answer, I, I could start. Um, first of all, th thanks for your question, Simon. I should say si Simon Glynn is one of the people who constantly inspires me to try to improve my cooking. Um, but uh, um, okay, you ask uh, what leads to this attitude of, of relativism and distance, and there are a lot of different ways I could answer this, uh, um, this question. I mean, especially if you bring in Boris Johnson, I, I can't Tell you what I think of Boris Johnson because we're in polite company, um, but uh, but I actually think that um, there's an attitude of, uh, of of dismissal that is shared by um, international actors, whether they come from the left or the right. There's no difference there, and it has to do with this encompassing stereotype about uh, um, about the Balkans, you know, in the 
90s people like to talk about ancient hatreds and ancient hatreds coming to life and they would use verbs like brewing and so on. Um, I mean, these are simply stereotypes about uh, um, about people being somehow backward or inclined to violence or wanting to uh, um, to have wars and they were used to discredit the experience of, of people to diminish efforts to uh, um, to to try to uh, um, to to build peace and and to postulate a kind of equivalence between uh, um, between all, all armed sides. Um, so of all of the hundreds of factors that we can name, I think that one the uh, um, the diminishing stereotype about uh, about the Balkans is probably the most important. Thank you, Eric. And uh, if if any of the other panelists would like to add uh, to that, particularly on the role of international um, powers and organizations. Well, it's, it's a complicated question. Um, short answer would be that the international community plays a, a still very, very large role in Bosnia uh, by the fact that uh, we live under Dayton Constitution, uh, Dayton Peace Agreement, which uh, also uh, provided our constitution uh, is still uh, in force. It was a painful compromise to stop the war that seemed to never, was never going to stop on its own and involved tremendous amount of international engagement, especially on the part of US and, and, and the allies. Uh, to, to stop the war and, and then to keep the peace and then lay the foundations for, for some kind of uh, reconciliation for um, institutional development and so on. Uh, Dayton is, many will argue, uh, on one hand, that it, is, it serves its purpose, that it's time to move on, that it contains many, many uh, forms of discrimination of, of citizens based on ethnicity or based on the where they live, which part of the country, whether they're part of majority or minority. There are, of course, those uh, who uh, claim that Dayton is, the, um, is absolutely set in stone, that we cannot change it. Uh, otherwise, we are unraveling uh, the, the constitutional order. It's a very um, easy excuse to make uh, to, to preserve the status quo, which, of course, favors the, the the current political elites, which have actually come from the from the war, I mean, pretty much same elites, uh, with some minor changes, uh, emerged from the war as 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 uh, relative victors, you know, and uh, they were able to stay in power almost unquestionable all this time. Uh, a few a few people were were tried, and I mean, re relatively few, given the amount of atrocities and uh, and and war crimes. Very few have seen uh, justice, and it was a process that took way too long, and and many many were um, many sentences were were uh, some people would argue were very lenient. Uh, many of those have already returned from their prisons, serving two thirds of their time. They run into the the victims uh, on the streets of the towns where they committed their crimes. Many others are never faced justice. It's a very slow process. It did not really add to true reconciliation. If anything, it was used by the same political elites, in fact, to, to accentuate uh, their positions, to claim murder, heard that, that there's a conspiracy against their particular 
um, ethnic group, that there is uh, international sort of interest to, to punish them, that the courts are unjust, regardless of, of millions of pages of documents and testimonies that were produced during these lengthy trials and so on. So the international community is still there. It's key to uh, keeping peace and stability. Uh, its level of interest comes and goes uh, depending on, on, on other issues, uh, including their domestic political issues, who is in power in, in, in their respective countries and so on. But uh, uh, the Eternal Peace Agreement and the Constitution is predicated on, on the international presence. It serves as sort of a final check and balance be between uh, various uh, parties uh, in country and in the region. Uh, because you cannot look at Bosnia and Herzegovina on its own. It, it's, it's a regional approach. I mean, our, our neighbors are still very much active in various ways uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and there are some other regional and, and even global players. Uh, with their own interests who further muddy the waters and complicate matters. So uh, this is the short answer and I apologize, but yes, international community is key. It's uh, our job uh, to keep uh, the level of interest high and to warn of the potential pitfalls of early withdrawal or, or, or imposition of some kind of compromises that, that would further entrench these ethnic divisions and that would work against the, the true reconciliation and the normal functioning of the state. Thank you very much, uh, Ambassador, uh, uh, for such a comprehensive response. Um, very briefly, I'll take one short question from Noel Keane, um, who says that, uh, uh, what do you think gave rise to the renewed drive to repress again the social and personal fact of the what was actually over 8,000 killings in Srebrenica and uh, what was happening in the social context to give rise to denial again. So uh, I know this ties in with some of the other questions and comments about um, about the, the genocide that occurred in Bosnia, um, which was recognised in the case of Srebrenica, but as um, our speakers have pointed out, really affected um, all uh, the country in all areas and all parts that uh, suffered during the war. But what is happening now in the present environment that is uh, allowing this uh, denial of genocide and atrocities um, to, to um, re-emerge and flourish in certain places? And uh, that's to, to, to any of the panelists. And um, maybe I'll I'll start, and maybe someone can might continue. I think uh, all of you might have something to add to this. But anyway, what we're seeing, I think now, but it's through the emergence of uh, social media, prominence of social media, we've seen we are seeing huge polarization of of views, um, and as a result of you know in a way uh, technologies, we are, we also see that certain views um, that wouldn't necessarily be heard we see that some of them unfortunately also be given prominence um, in light of the, the these polarized uh, views. We also have to acknowledge that there is different uh, in light of, we live in a different world than we did almost 30 years ago. Um, at a time when, um, the um, uh, former former Yugoslavian, uh, led by a Serbian nationalists at the time, when they were uh, are arguing that 
in Bosnia, we, we wish to create an Islamic state that the, the Serbs are oppressed that, you know, and so on, that they're trying to portray their own revisionist, if you like, um, portrayal of, of, of this, their own, their own kind of vision of, of, of Bosnia uh, and revision of, of history. Um, that at the time, it, it wasn't almost, it, it wasn't believable. Um, they, it, it didn't, uh, what it did actually, in, in a way it was successful, it caused lots of confusion. Uh, they tried to, um, um, uh, the Bosnian war was very much understood as, um, as this understood <laughs> uh, conflict where, you know, we, we, um, we were raised to hate each other, we were raised to, uh, you know, uh, um, we, we couldn't wait for the end of the Yugoslavia to start almost killing each other, which is complete nonsense. Because we, I think, you know, even when you go to to all uh, to the part of the Bo Bosnian Federation and you know any part of the Bosnian Federation that suffered a lot, you can say that you know our in our strength, uh, our strength is in our diversity, and we always Bosnia was very uh, proud to be this pluralist state. Uh, that acknowledges and embraces all of the people from all walks of life, but it's important that we acknowledge uh, that, um, that the, the war uh, during the war, Bosnian Muslims were particularly targeted, um, and that was something that was seen uh, and understood by the international community. Uh, at the time during during the war, there wasn't this kind of. Um, um, uh, um, uh, we, were li we lived in a different era where nowadays um, there is a huge rhetoric, uh, um, Islamophobic rest uh, rhetoric. And I think what we, we are we're seeing now is that many uh, uh, Serbian nationalists are trying to take advantage of, of this, uh, this rhetoric to rewrite the history, to say, uh, well, you know, this actually Serbs were, were the victims. I think all the Bosnian people were living in Bosnia who wanted multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multicultural Bosnia uh, wanted that. And we keep saying is that we, um, and someone who practices faithfully is, it's for it's 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 uh, we are uh, we are saying for, forgive we are preaching for forgiveness but not forgetting because we have to make sure that we learn from the lessons of the war that this doesn't happen that it doesn't happen to us to our children and grandchildren and and so on it doesn't happen because you know if you think of it at the end of, at the, after the second world war we were saying you know there, uh, that uh, the genocide with, with um, uh, all the parties were saying you know never again and we had you know less than 50 years again we had genocide happening at the European soil we had the longest siege of, uh, of a modern city in the modern time you know and so on and you know so what we are seeing now is that and unfortunately we're living in a time where the society is very much polarized we are not getting not everyone is getting accurate information there is huge amount of disinformation um, and I think more than ever it's important for all of the organizations statutory bodies and activists and everyone really not to wait on others but to do their share in making sure that the truth is being heard that um, that the justice prevail and that we work jointly uh, despite of our differences to find a common common ground uh, to, to make sure that history does not repeat itself. So uh, I think I'll add. Um, Thank you, Pardis. And I'm afraid I'll actually have to wind up the discussion at this point. Uh, we've run slightly over. I just want to acknowledge two of the questions, one by uh, Kurt Basner about uh, the ongoing advocacy efforts um, within Ireland to raise awareness of Bosnia, because I think Fardis covered that in her piece. Like, that was an earlier question, um, particularly in relation to recent 
um, government statements. Uh, last year, we had a minute silence in the doll, and even the um, commemoration for the 25th anniversary of Srebrenica, which was attended by Donisha Leo Kvaradkar and other prominent government ministers. But that was all grassroots. Um, activism uh, and uh, indeed contacting and it might well be said pestering uh, of our local representatives um, in order to raise that awareness and you know to be fair the Irish government and Irish politicians across the political spectrum have responded and uh, very positively to to um, you know our calls for for Srebrenica to be recognized as it should be um, according to, for example, European Parliament resolutions and such like. So Ireland is quite strong in Europe uh, on that ground. And just another question by Ursula Murphy. Um, it's just such a huge topic that we don't have time to deal with. Uh, the issue, for example, of two schools under one roof, that policy um, within the Federation, uh, entity of Bosnia-Herzegovina, where you have um, children from um, Bosniak and, and Croat uh, ethnicities um, educated separately, although within the same building. Likewise, similar issues in Republika Srpska uh, in relation to um, to curriculum matters and kind of segregation within the curriculum. Um, I think this is an issue that we really should come back to and there should be more discussion of because it is certainly one that um, that Ireland could learn from, and possibly just some of Fardis's remarks just at the end um, could also be applied within the context of education. So I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, and I know people are, are hurrying off to other events. It's quite a beautiful evening here in Dublin. So um, I just want to again thank all our panelists and all the attendees for joining us this evening. We hope you found the event informative and that it was an opportunity to reflect on the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the 1990s, to remember its victims and its survivors, but also to realize um, the, the implications of what we can learn um, from that conflict today. So, Havala uh, Puno and Idavogenia, and have a lovely evening. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.